Welcome to the Polymath Podcast. I'm Professor Alistair Duff. I'm going to talk about how to be an intellectual. I would claim to be an intellectual, and you might think that's rather arrogant. Well, I actually have a very low bar. An intellectual, in my definition, is anyone who thinks. George Bernard Shaw, the great playwright of the 20th century, British playwright, he said, I have gained an international reputation for myself by thinking for five minutes twice a week. And he went on to say he thinks most people don't think at all, or only very rarely. I think there's something in that, and I think that we don't exercise our brain muscle as often as we ought. I really didn't start thinking properly until I was in my 20s, and I've developed the habit, and now, actually, when others listen to music in their spare time or... I don't know, they go see sights, go for lovely walks in the countryside. My favourite habit is actually sitting and thinking, sitting there and thinking. So let's think about who has been an intellectual, who might inspire us, and then I'll go on to why we should want to be intellectuals and whether it's important. Well, probably the first exemplar of of an intellectual would be Socrates, who was a cobbler. You don't need an education to be an intellectual. Uh, everyone's been endowed with a, with reason. You don't need qualifications. So he went around, he used his mind, and famously he went around among young people in Athens and questioned them, what do you think is justice, or what do you think is temperance, or some other virtue, and they'd give him an answer, and he'd then then unpick their answer and probe. It was called, later came to be called Socratic dialogue, dialogue, excuse me, or Socratic questioning. And he made a whole generation, more than one generation, think. For his pains, he was eventually sentenced to death by the powers that be in Athens and was made to drink hemlock which is probably a very humane way of doing capital punishment. And, uh, of course, the rest is history. Who else would I want to mention? Well, bringing it right down to the 19th century, what about Kierkegaard? He was a Danish philosopher, one of the best Denmark has produced. There's a statue of him in Copenhagen, which I was, my wife and I were pleased to privileged to see a few years ago. And he's famous as an existentialist, one of the fathers of existentialism. He, um, he was an intellectual in the sense that he, he thought for himself and he broke away from dominant, dominant orthodoxies of his day. 
Hegel, the great German philosopher, was dominant in German and Danish universities, was somewhat of a, you know, a, a god. And Kierkegaard thought his system, Hegel's system, was basically wrong and wrote these works against Hegel and developed, uh, you know, a sort of individualistic approach to life. So he's often considered the father of existentialism, which is a very individualistic philosophy. And he had his own beliefs. They weren't Hegelian. He was a Christian, but never at home in the established church of Copenhagen because he was too independent. And he had his own gift, which was to think and to express his thoughts. If you want to read Kierkegaard, you should, I think, start with his journals because some of his Publish other published works are quite difficult to to get into. One of the best things he ever said was, "Life must be understood backwards, but lived forwards." I often quote that to people who are upset about something that's happened to them. And he had a lot of other great sayings. So I'll let you discover Kierkegaard, but he would be he was regarded as odd in his day, unconventional. And I think intellectuals are often considered odd. I think in the Middle Ages, they were often castigated basically as wizards or witches. And I think today some people regard me (laughs) as a bit of a wizard uh, because I'm a little different from most people in the street I live in where I live. So who else should we talk about? What about uh, Karl Marx? He was an intellectual. Um, He was a journalist. And he too thought through what was happening. And he was a Hegelian, in fact. But he developed his own outlook, of course, Marxism. He once said, Moi, je ne suis pas un Marxiste. And what he meant by that was, Everyone's using my work wrongly. And he, of course, came out with a great critique of industrial capitalism in his famous work, which you no doubt know of, Das Kapital. I've actually read it, well, volume one from beginning to end, and many of his other works. And it really is a truly impressive analysis of capitalism. I've read a lot of other socialist literature But socialism didn't produce anyone else of the same intellectual caliber as Marx, which isn't to say he was right about everything. He was wrong about quite a lot. But his contribution to sociology and to political economy and philosophy was uh, seminal. And he was noted as an intellectual. He was different from others, and he couldn't fit into conventional social structures. Intellectuals are often like that. They are marginal figures, liminal figures, and they, you know, they don't, they're square pegs in round holes. They have to sometimes break things down. They, they do, boundary work. They're on the edge. 
sometimes they're interdisciplinary. But at any rate, they're questioning often fundamental assumptions. And that is how the needle moves forwards in society by some kind of disruption. So intellectuals can be a vanguard in social change. Who else shall I talk about? Well, the next one that pops into my mind is another Jewish-German thinker, and this is Einstein. Now, I was not very good at science at school, and I really went into the arts and humanities, and then I got interested in the social sciences. But a couple of years ago, I was in London with my wife, and we wandered into a second-hand shop, I think it was Oxfam or something like that, in Kensington, as it happened. And I saw, I rummaged through the second-hand books. I almost never find anything I want to buy. And I've got too many books as it is, and try not to buy any more. But I saw one by Albert Einstein called An Introduction to Relativity. So I thought, okay, it's only two pounds. I'll buy it. You feel guilty, don't you, if you go into a second-hand place and you don't buy something. So I paid for it, started reading it. It really was an absolute revelation. You know, it, it just, his analysis of the nature of matter is absolutely incredible. And what he says about time and space and the space-time continuum what he says about the fundamental nature of reality, how really gravity doesn't really exist. There's just curved space-time, which makes you think things are falling down, but they're not. You know, it's a complete revolution. Of course, everyone knows that about Einstein and his theory of relativity, but the book is so lucid, and intellectuals, well, he was beyond intellectual. He was genius. Geniuses have a way of explaining very complex materials very clearly, often. It's once said that if you can't explain something to a child, you're not any, of any complexity, then you're not a good teacher. Well, by the same token, you know, if, if you can't explain your theory in simple terms, you're not a genius in my book. And Introduction to Relativity is, I do recommend you get hold of it because I've subsequently read lots of other books on relativity and theoretical physics and quantum mechanics, which followed from the theory of relativity. And I've even tried to read lots of articles in physics journals and astronomy journals and nothing I've also read Bertrand Russell's in ABC of Relativity, which is of high repute, or was for a long time. But even that, and he was a very clear writer, the philosopher Bertrand Russell, even that just doesn't compare with this introduction to his own work by Einstein, translated into English. So, Einstein, another intellectual, and you've probably got a mental picture of him with his beard and his, you know, his long hair. He was quite a star. He was a friend of Charlie Chaplin, and he, he was box office. 
he could fill big halls when he did his lecture tours and was was a big star in America where he had had to flee from Germany, I believe. Einstein, probably the greatest mind of the 20th century. I mentioned Bertrand Russell there. Russell is not remembered so much today, but if you're talking about philosophers, Einstein was a scientist, of course. He wasn't a philosopher, although they, of course, overlap. But if you're talking about pure philosophers, there were, were really two or three greats in the 20th century, and they were Wittgenstein, and Bertrand Russell, and then below them, and Rawls, but he's kind of different, he's a political thinker. So let's talk about Russell and Wittgenstein. Everyone in professional philosophy would agree that those two are were at the pinnacle of philosophy in the 20th century. And then there's a second tier, where you've got people like A.J. Ayer, J.L. Austin, Peter Strawson, Peter Winch, uh, you know, Elizabeth Anscombe, many Quine, many great philosophers, but they weren't quite on the level as Bertrand Russell and Ludwig Wittgenstein. I think that would be a, a well-accepted view if you put it out to philosophers today. And Russell, of course, was a public figure, uh, he was notorious because he questioned Christian morality at a time when it was unfashionable to do so. And he was somewhat of a libertine. He had quite a lot of women in his life. Um, he also opposed the British involvement in the First World War, which later many people think he was right about. He supported the Second World War. As he said, my views on the Second World War were entirely orthodox. But as a younger man, he opposed the First World War. And he, in fact, he was horrified that whole populations, including the British, were actually cheering about it before they realized what it would involve. So I think quite brave, very bravely, he opposed it and he was threatened with prison and he was cast out of the college at Cambridge University where he was a leading don. So he paid a price for his beliefs, but no one questioned his stature as a thinker. He had made fundamental contributions to the philosophy of mathematics and to epistemology. He also made some fairly useful contributions to political philosophy. For example, a book on power, not a classic, but a good book. But his work in mathematics, like Principia Mathematica, was fundamental and land, a landmark in the philosophy of mathematics. Um, but interestingly, he also wrote popular works. 
He wrote one called um, Unpopular Essays, and that's a collection of his articles for the general public. He was a member of CND. He was a member of the Committee of 100, which was a bunch of distinguished scientists and philosophers and others, authors, who opposed nuclear armaments, and they used to do sit-ins. Just a hundred of them would sit down on the ground to oppose British policy or American policy during the Cold War. So he was an activist and an intellectual. He always thought hard about what should happen, um, what we should believe. An intellectual is someone who questions everything. As I've said, with Kierkegaard, it doesn't mean you can't have fundamental beliefs. Kierkegaard was a devout Christian. And, you know, Marx was a Hegelian of sorts. You know, people can be committed to a religion, a theology, a secular religion, and still be intellectuals. But you sort of ride a bit loose of the dogma. And a Christian intellectual can't easily fit into an organized church, Kierkegaard being an example. And, you know, Marxist intellectuals tend to break with the party sooner or later, because being in a political party involves discipline and involves sacrificing your conscience to some extent. You see this in national liberation movements. We saw it in the Scottish National Party, very unified. And you couldn't pick one member of the Scottish Parliament off from another if they were in the SNP. They always had a party line. And you have to be disciplined if you're fighting for a difficult cause like national self-determination. So intellectuals don't fit easily into political parties, though their sympathies can be with them. Now, Sartre was a communist, but a, more of a fellow traveler than a party member. And it's true of so many intellectuals, Christian intellectuals, Marxist intellectuals, Maoist intellectuals, and so on. A, a thinker, a, an intellectual, will be more likely to be a fellow traveler than a signed-up, dogmatic, lifelong member of an organization. So even though their values, fundamental values, are the same. So Russell's a very interesting study. And I, I think intellectuals, I wouldn't call someone an intellectual if they only stay in the private sphere. If they won't move out of their speculations, move out of their study, move out of their, of their ivory tower, into the marketplace and talk to ordinary people, talk to the public, develop a, pub, a public, find an audience, let your voice be heard. I wouldn't call you an intellectual if you just that. To me, you're more of, you're just a scientist or you're just a philosopher or you're just a drone sometimes. You've got to break out of the private sphere if you're going to qualify as an intellectual, in my opinion. And Russell's a great example of that. I really admire him and I've read 
biographies of him. Not everything he did was commendable, but his integrity was commendable, and his courage, and his willingness, excuse me, to leave the comfort zone and to get out into the warfare of public life. I'm not going to talk about Wittgenstein, in fact. I want to really move into the 21st century as I close this podcast. This is my professor, in case you've just tuned in. And I want to mention a guy called Steve Fuller, who's one of the most eminent British philosophers and thinkers and a self-confessed intellectual. A lot of people don't like to call themselves an intellectual because they think it sounds arrogant, but he is proud to say it. He's not an arrogant person at all. But he he's not ashamed to call himself an intellectual, and in fact he's written a book entitled The Intellectual. And he's a philosopher of science, <clears throat> excuse me, he's made fundamental contributions to epistemology, to social studies of science. He in fact founded a whole school of thought, really a sub-discipline called social epistemology. But he's also, as I've been saying, someone who's prepared to get out the ivory tower. He gives public talks. I heard him speak at the Edinburgh Book Festival once, and he talks about controversial issues. He's waded into debates in America. He's actually American. I said he was British, but he's American. Similarly, I think I may have said that uh, George Bernard Shaw was a British playwright. He was Irish, so let me just correct that. But anyway, Steve Fuller operates from a British university, but he's not just an ivory tower type. He goes around the country giving talks. I think he's given over a, over a thousand talks and he's prepared to engage. He's a very, very engaging person. I've been privileged to meet him a few times. And in fact, he once gave me a copy of his book, The Intellectual, and he wrote inside look at Proposition 3. So I read the book, it's a short book, very readable. And Proposition 3, I think it was, is intellectuals must have a business plan. Now, I think he was trying to tell me that I needed to build my career rather more carefully, because my career has been a zigzag, really, and I haven't been ruthless enough in advancing my interests, I think, in academia. I think he noticed that, and he says intellectuals must have, and I'm honoured to think he thinks I'm an intellectual. I wouldn't say I'm in his league. But anyway, he counts me as a member of the brotherhood or sisterhood of intellectuals, but one lacking a business plan. So that's something to think about. But, you know, the guys I've mentioned... People like Socrates, he didn't have a business plan. Kierkegaard didn't have a business plan. Socrates, as I said, was executed by the Athenian state, which, despite its being democratic, they finished him off. Kierkegaard, he was born into a well-to-do family, got an inheritance, never did a day's work at Tesco's or anything like that. And he was rapidly getting through his inheritance and was on the way to the bank to cash his final check, after which he would have been destitute. 
but died on the way to the bank of some heart attack or something. I think he was in his early 40s. That wasn't a business plan kind of guy, was it? And Russell didn't have a business plan. He wouldn't have ended up in prison or as an ostracized member of the British public had he had a business plan. No, I'm not sure, Steve Fuller, I agree with you. I think intellectuals often don't have a business plan. And I might even suggest that it's a defining feature of intellectuals, that they don't have business plans. They don't have systematic, um, you know, programs for how they're going to change the world. It's not, it's messier than that with intellectuals. As I've said, intellectuals don't fit in. I remember as a kid thinking, oh, I'm different from other guys. I remember thinking that. And I was in the first 15 rugby team and the football team. I had lots of friends. But somehow I felt I was different. And I think now it's because I was thinking maybe a little harder, a a little more independently than others. They might have been better scholars than me. They might have been better rugby players. But I was doing something a little different. I was analysing what was going on and I was lying awake at night thinking through things which were probably way above my station. But somehow they affected me. And I think that is a sign of someone who is a budding intellectual. But as I said at the start, at the top of this programme, as they say in broadcast, you do not need to be qualified to be an intellectual. Socrates was a cobbler. All you have to do is switch on your brain. And we know that most positions in society are a result of your background. You know, Russell was lucky. He was born into the aristocracy, so he could easily develop his mind. But And Wittgenstein was also a member of the upper class. Many, so was Kierkegaard. So were many. So it was easy for them to think. Not so for Socrates. Not so for many people who've emerged as intellectuals, come from the grassroots, come from disadvantaged backgrounds. There's no bar. There's no barrier to being an intellectual. You can start right now. Start thinking. Start reading. Start philosophizing in the best sense of that term. Start probing. You know, there's an old joke about intellectuals, definition of an intellectual, someone who worries if something works in practice, will it also work in theory? And there are many other jokes about intellectuals. They're called boffins in tabloid newspapers. They are considered, as I said earlier, wizards, or they were in the Middle Ages, well, right down to early modernity, and often persecuted as such. It simply involves a little moral courage and a little effort to use your gift, whether it's God-given in your opinion or it comes through a long process of survival of the fittest. But we have this organ which animals do not have in the same sophisticated form. That organ that muscle is the mind, and you, you simply have to exercise that, and it's painful. 
thinking. Thinking is the hardest thing in the world. We're always searching for distractions because thinking is hard. I find it hard. My mind wanders all the time and I bring it back. I rein it in and I stare into space and think through what I've read, what I've seen, what people have said and try to meld it into a coherent, logical sequence of ideas. That is what being an intellectual is, and it's open to everybody. So read some of these guys I've mentioned. Socrates, um, Russell, Kierkegaard, oh, right down into the 21st century, Chomsky, Habermas. I'll talk about some of these guys in another podcast. Read the intellectuals of the recent past, of ancient history, and of today, and become an intellectual yourself and contribute your thinking to the public sphere. Well, I hope you found this interesting. This is Professor Alistair Duff and the Polymath Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye.